0: Hi everybody, bienvenidos, bienvenidas. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. This is Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Alfredo Toro Hardy, diplomat and scholar, about his new book, The Crossroads of Globalization, a Latin American View. Alfredo, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Pamela. I'm very happy to be in the show.
0: Alfredo, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career.
1: Well, Pamela, I mean, I I'm a Venezuelan retired career diplomat and scholar. Uh, Arthur Paracana uh, wrote once that I represented the quintessential scholar-diplomat. On its side, Cambridge Scholar Geoffrey Hawthorne wrote that I have a rare and distinctive voice which resulted from the fact of being a scholar on international relations and a diplomat with a wide and immediate experience. I think that these phrases encapsulate well what I believe to be my comparative advantage. As a seasoned career diplomat, that has had to exercise the craft of his profession amid highly challenging circumstances, while at the same time continuously reflecting, studying and writing on international affairs, I have developed a distinctive approach within this field of knowledge. This approach combines the pragmatism that derives from engaging with a real and pressing problems with the method and the curiosity of the scholar. Within the the pragmatic side of such duality, I was a long-time career diplomat. Before resigning from the Venezuelan Ministry of Foreign Affairs in mid-2017 in protest for the violation of human rights that were taking place in my country, I occupy some of venezuela's top ambassadorial posts since nineteen ninety one and two thousand and seventeen uh, i served as ambassador to many countries uh, including the u s uh, the u k spain et etc. On the other hand, <clears throat> within the scholarly side of say duality I have uh, been both an author and an academic. As author, I have published 19 individual books on international affairs, plus several chapters in co-author books in the same topic, and around uh, run 30 academic papers in peer review journals. Within my uh, trajectory in academia, I have been, um, I have uh, several, several, uh, I've been Rockefeller Foundation, Bellagio Century, resident scholars a couple of times. I've been visiting professor at Princeton University, visiting professor at the University of Brasilia, etc. So um, these two sides of the same coin have reinforced each other. I cannot write on international affairs without feeling the constraints of reality in the same manner in which I could enact as a diplomat with, uh, without approaching problems from an analytical perspective. So, this duality is very much who I am.
0: And having this vast and rich experience and uh, having written so much, why did you write The Crossroads of Globalization? How did you come to write this last book?
1: Well, you see, I think this is a fundamental issue of the time. Uh, You know, globalization emerged as a result of political intention and technological feasibility, and now it finds itself seriously challenged for the same reasons. The political impulse to globalization came from several convergence uh, sources all controlled in their time by the main Western economies. They got Uruguay Round, Washington Consensus, the structural adjustment directives of the International Monetary Fund, over the birth and expansion of the WTO with the World Trade Organization, were some of the fundamental expression of that political will. Globalizations, as its promoters assume, would mainly benefit liberal democracies, which were, at the same time, the most advanced economies. Political intention was reinforced by a technological feasibility. This feasibility was centered in the so-called global chains of value. These chains of value allowed to surge for the lowest cost blue-collar worker and the better qualified lower cost white-collar worker wherever they could be found. Mobilizing, monitoring, and controlling this process require huge technological advances in the field of information, communication, and transport. It happens, though, that political intention is now reverse in its course and it's now moving in the opposite direction. Globalization was supposed to have played to the advantage of liberal societies, which were which were presumably best suited to capitalize on the fast and the fluid global marketplace. But instead, for the better part of two decades, middle classes middle class wages in the world's leading democracies have been stagnant and economic uh, inequality is uh, rising sharply. The plight of the West middle class is the consequence of the integration into global markets of billions of low-wage workers from developing economies. Liberal democracies within the Western world are besieged by powerful populist movements. Piece by piece, the strongholds of liberal democracy, including Washington itself, are falling into the their extreme views as a result. Globalization is also under siege as protectionist, economic nationalist, rejection of economic multilateralism and anti EU anti European Union attitudes. Expressed the emerging political credo. Technological feasibility on its sides makes possible the onshoring of economic activities uh, to the Western world proclaimed as an aim by political intention. That is, the coming back uh, to the Western world of. Uh, Economic activities that, as a result of globalization, were sent abroad. However, however very dissimilar, populist man and technological leaps factually converge in providing the impulse for the onshoring of economic activities. The fourth industrial revolution leads to the obsolescence of the global chains of value. Uh, why, indeed, go manufacturing or looking for service providers afar, far when technology increasingly allows for competitive for competitive options at home? Uh, the reason of this book is analyze this complex process from a Latin American perspective. How can Latin America act or react Upon the drawing of certainties that it's taking place. Latin America, as other parts of the world, is bracing itself for an unpredictable future. Hence, this book has two fundamental aims. On the one hand, to describe the process taking place amid uh, the crossroads of globalization on a world scale. And on the other hand, its impact for Latin America.
0: Yeah, you are already paving the way of some of the major topics we are going to be talking about today in the show. I I just want uh, for our listeners to have some context, as you did in, in the first chapter of your book. Your book starts by explaining the economic growth of the Latin American region in the 19th century. And in there, you also explain the changes in regards to world economy and economic models in recent times. Just to give our listeners some more information about it, could you briefly explain what has been the relationship of Latin America with the globalized economy during the last century?
1: Yes, of course. Well, since the beginning of their independence life, Latin American countries decided that the future development of the region was to be linked to the export of natural resources and the import of needed capital goods. During the half century comprised between eighteen sixteen and nineteen ten, that America grew more than other peripheral regions and kept pace with European growth. World War a World War I, though interrupted the Bonanza and the access to foreign manufacturers brought up by the by this uh, first year of globalization. Again, unexpectedly, the Great Depression of the 1930s caught the region for a second time from the much-needed manufacturers that it used to buy abroad. The fragility of the economic world order to which Latin America had pledged itself, not only as a reliable commodity supply but as a relevant import of manufactured goods, manufactured goods was becoming evident. Predictably, industrialization began to be seen as the appropriate medicine to provide more stability and firmer economic ground. This World War II gave new impetus to this industrialization process. At the end of the war was what was already in fact the import, substituting industrialization process began to be conceptualized. In 1948, indeed, the theoretical framework for this process began to take shape. The organization entrusted with uh, search and labor was the Economic Commission for Latin America, a, an institution born in precisely in 1948 under the umbrella of the United Nations. Um, unlike Asia, where an outward-oriented industrial growth would be emphasized since the 1960s, Latin America of that time visualized industrialization as an inward oriented process. The region would manufacture products domestically instead of importing them this import-substituting industrialization presented two important flaws, uh, which were proved to be very costly to the region when the wrong circumstances concatenated themselves. The first flow was to visualize this process as permanent in nature. In doing so, they did not proceed like All major developed economies have done. That is, using its interventionist economic policies to promote industrialization and protect national companies until they were strong enough to compete internationally. Thus, domestic industry were indefinitely isolated from international competition. This implied creating a tremendous gap between highly competitive companies abroad and highly protected companies inside. The second flaw was that the dependency on commodities continued to be fundamental, as they were the one generated in the currency that nurtured this whole process. Indeed, while local manufacturers were sold, indeed the protected trade area commodities were sold abroad, thus becoming the fundamental source of currency. Notwithstanding these flows, the system provided very important results. While it subsisted, Latin America was able to build innovation and industrial capabilities. And indeed, this period was certainly the golden age of economic growth in Latin America. However, the flaws with this system, uh, within this model were ready to concatenate when the right stage of international conditions appear, and they did so as a result of the debt crisis uh, of, uh, of the 80s. It all began during the 1970s, when an international banking system overflowed with the petrodollars resulting from the sudden hike of prices devoted itself to plentiful loans. This easy access to international credits actively promoted by lenders themselves was seen by Latin American governments as an excellent opportunity to invest in infrastructure and in the modernization of its estate industry. As a consequence, the region got greatly indebted. Nonetheless, this didn't seem to be a problem at the time, as conventional wisdom as the conventional wisdom of the day assured that the interest rates would remain low for the foreseeable future. Unfortunately, they did not. Fighting its own problem of inflation, the United States initiated interest rate increase increases that climbed to over twenty percent. These rates spill over to loans to Latin America, triggering the Latin American debt crisis of the early 80s. But at the same time that interest rates were hiking, the price of primary products was going down. The reason behind these two phenomena were very much the same. Faced with a hike of oil prices in 1979, the new governments of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher decided to fight inflation not only through interest rate increases, by, but also by reducing fiscal expenditure. These policies resulted in a recession that increased unemployment and precipitated the fall in the demand and by extension in the price of commodities. Such Unexpected downturn of the prices of uh, raw materials gradually affected the capacity of Latin American governments to meet their debts. While the sources of currency income were dropping, the external debt was growing exponentially as a result of the interest rate <clears throat> havoc. Uh, I must add that uh, the situation of extreme weakness was compounded by the appearance of a new economic paradigm brought again by the two of Reagan Thatcher, that is, neoliberalism. Just when Latin American governments were in need to renegotiate their debts and acquire fresh loans to pay for the old ones, they were confronted to this all-powerful ideology. With its negotiation leverage collapse, the region had no other option but to bow to the so-called Washington Consensus and to the directives of its sector executive arm, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. The Washington Consensus was the result of the convergent position of a group of institutions based in washington d c that's why the name Washington Consensus chiefly the U.S. Treasury Department, the World Bank, and the IMF itself. Its agenda included structural reforms, such as trade liberalization, privatization of public assets, economic deregulation, fiscal discipline, fiscal reform, uh, etc. As part of the rescue package uh, of indebted countries, the International Monetary Fund became a sort of international back-proxy receiver. As a result, indebted countries willing to renegotiate their debts had to accept the IMF conditions, which were precisely those of the Washington Consensus. All of the above led to the sudden and widespread opening of the Latin American trade barriers. Um, according to a well known author, Richard Baldwin, in Latin America, the tariff cuts looked like a river falling off a cliff in the late 1980s and early 1990s. This forced had totally unprepared industrial sector to compete with the most efficient companies of the world. Isolating local industry from outside competition had, in be, had indeed been a huge mistake. But the corrective medicine should never have been the starting opening of trade barriers. Uh, the most successful developing countries, those of East Asia, had opened themselves to the outside world. But they did so slowly and in a sequenced way. That should have happened in Latin America as well. No one doubts that Latin America had an important catch-up process in however. The reform process should have been guided by common sense and not by ideology. If there was much to be dismantled, there was much to be preserved as well. What happened instead was the equivalent to suddenly throwing down the protective walls of the citadel to let Genghis Khan hordes into the citadel. Companies that had thrived under the whole system began to be slaughtered in mass. On the other hand, and also on the, the ideological commands of the Washington Consensus, an irrational privatization process of state-owned companies took place. As a result, the very same state companies and public utilities whose expansions had indebted the government, started to be sold at lovable prices. Uh, The the beneficiaries of this process were normally transnational corporations. Hence, while Latin American governments were facing a foreign debt that had grown out of proportion in relation to the original loans, the assets that had been developed developed with them were being bargained to the transnational capital. This involved a net and massive transfer of wealth overseas an additional part of the problem had to do with the fact that private enterprise companies were disconnected from the traditional domestic suppliers and reconnected to intra-corporative uh, supply chains. As a result, national productive chains were totally disrupted and brought with them uh, the, the slaughter as well of local companies, which were dependent on the big local companies. Uh, not surprisingly, the effects of the neoliberal policies were devastating for the Latin American industrial base, which between 1980 and 2002, suffered a significant contraction. But it's not only uh, the industrial base itself, the technological capabilities that have been associated to those industries. Well, dramatically contracted as well. Henceforward, henceforward, important technology became the aim to follow, as it was assumed that this would naturally come by way of foreign direct investment. Uh, But as it happened in Mexico, which is the most extreme showcase in this area, more well, than forty years of sustained technological efforts were swept away and supplanted by an enclave assembly sector. Although positive in purely macroeconomic terms, neoliberal policies had a profoundly regressive effect for Latin American industrial and technological sector. At Latin American followed common sense approach to reform, as was the case in China during the same period, the history of the region would have evolved in a very different direction. If instead of applying shock therapy to change the system, they had adopted the famous economic reform dictum by Deng Xiaoping of crossing the river by filling the stones, many good things could have been preserved. At the same time, inefficiencies could have been purged in irrational ways. While well, Latin America witnessed during those years an accelerated downward tendency, China showed a spectacular climbing one. These reverse tendencies would become evident when China and Latin American roads crossed each other at the beginning of the millennium. When Latin American industries were beginning to redress themselves from the impact caused by the neoliberal tsunami, The avalanche of Chinese low cost products came along. It was a second shock that pushed to the corner those Latin American industries that had been able to survive. China had, though, a redeeming virtue that the Washington Consensus never did. It was a voracious consumer of commodities. Thanks to this voraciousness, the price of natural resources began to boom in Latin America. Unfortunately, there was a price tag attached to, be, to this bonanza. The countries of the region that benefited from the Chinese market had to redefine a role within a new international division of labor. This meant that a substantial part of Latin America, basically all of South America, had to go back in time to the beginning of the 20th century when it has shown essentially as a producer of commodities. But commodities exporters were not the only ones that had to redefine their role in this new international division of labor. Mexico, the Dominican Republic, Central America had also to find a new one. They specialize in labor-intensive assembly lines, transforming their economies in what I am Brahmer categorized as shadow state. By this it meant countries that have tied their economic possibilities almost entirely to a single pathful partner. For these Latin American countries, the dominant partner is the United States. So, having been pushed totally and prepared into globalization by international circumstances beyond its control and mistakes of its own making. Latin America reluctantly moved into an interconnected world economy. Forced to run before it was prepared to walk, it adapted and survived. Globalization, though, has not been a rose garden for Latin America, as its countries were divided into two groups. On the one hand, those which specialized in labor intensive industrial economies, and those that went back in time. To a high degree of dependency in commodities. And of course, neither of these options is the best. However, whatever the options might have been, that America found its space within the globalized economy. Were the rules of the game to change now, the region would certainly suffer.
0: Now that you have explained to us this complex process and some of these uh, devastating results for uh, the region, I would like to move to chapter two, where you explain, uh, what you tell us more about the supporters, supporters of globalization? Can you tell us who they are and what are they, their interests?
1: Yes, of course. Well... In favor of globalization place the conviction that this phenomenon has still a very important role to play. This conviction conviction is supported by a complex combination of ideological beliefs, pragmatic considerations, economic processes, interests, and institutional frameworks. This is associated with market economy, supply chains, the international fragmentation of production, global value chains, chain, etc., etc. At the beginning, though, matters were more straightforward, and globalization had a clearly ideological nature. Anglo-Saxon capitalism was in the commanding height, becoming the one in charge of putting in motion and, and, and guiding globalization. The Anglo Saxon model was to be instrumented at the global level by two powerful mechanisms the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the GATT, and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. The former dated back to 1947, while the latter was created in 1945, by 44. Together with the World Bank, they were part of the Bretton Woods system born under the auspices of the US with the aim of regulating the world economy. Both the and IMF become fundamental forces in the launching of globalization. As a matter of fact, they acted as two huge convergent pins generated the condition for the developing economies to submit to market economy. The CAT was a very loose institution whose rules and procedures were developed in a ad hoc way. Within this arrangement, there was a clear inequality of power with the so-called quad, short for quadrilateral group conformed by the US, the European Union, Japan, and Canada, being able to work behind the scenes to shape most decisions. At the time, Negotiations within the GATT were known as the Uruguay Round. Round. And they were called to call the the new trade areas, that is to say, services, intellectual property, and investments. Agriculture was also included. During the Uruguay Round, the Philippine economies made numerous concessions in areas such as. Foreign investment liberalization, reduction of tariffs and export subsidies, extension of international trade laws to the service sector, reduction of limits to import of foreign goods, acceptance of intellectual property guidelines from developed economies, etc. The, the decisive reason for this complacent attitude before the demands of the developed world responded to the economic weakness of the developing one. Indeed, the debt, the debt tra- crisis, which I talked before, and collapsed commodity prices, to which I also referred before, put the developing economies under immense pressure to comply. But while the cat pins was pushing in direction to the so-called new trade areas, the IMF Pincer was, was enforcing the Washington Consensus, of which we already spoke a few minutes ago when referring to Latin America. Like sourceless apprentices, though, the GATT and the IMF put in motion a process that had, that had a dynamic of its own, especially so because technology allowed for a new kind of fluidity in international trade that defied all intents of control. A globalization process that was supposed to benefit the fastest moving economies. The fastest and moving economies, precisely those of liberal democracies, lifted instead emerging economy at the expense of a developed one. Supply chains this became the first step in tying off The winds of change. Shareholder mentality, profit maximization, and the compulsion for immediate returns, fundamental pieces of the Anglo Saxon capitalism, naturally led to a search for the lowest production cost. The gigantic advances in information and communications technology and transport allow for this search to take place at a global scale. Every product that reaches an end user represents the cumulative and the cumulative effort of multiple organizations. These organizations are referred to collectively as the supply chain. Their aim is the manufacturing of each piece or component of a final product, wherever the cheapest cost of production can be found. The result of the supply chain is a possible race to a power, which can only be solved thanks to impressive achievements in the technology of information, communication, and transfer. The monitoring, monitoring, control, and mobilization of endless pieces, parts, and companies moving in the most diverse directions requires, among others, uh, things highly sophisticated software giant freighters, and exceptional board logistics global value chain represents a natural extension to the previously referred supply chains global value chains aim at adding value to the product in every step although supply chain activities are essentially concerned with a transfer of material from one place to the other, the chain is primarily concerned in providing greater value for price product. Uh, the latter leads to a larger integration of both manufacturing services. Iranian bulb is a full range of activities required to bring a product from its consumption and design to its final market and distribution. A typical value chain is made of uh, prefabric- uh, prefabrication activities such as design, finance, and organizational activities, fabrication activities, things done in factories, and post-fabrication activities such as marketing, postal services, and the like. Of these activities, those related to a trend called certification of manufacturers are one that are that are more value to the product. In other words, companies not only uh, companies not only search for the lowest blue collar worker cost for each manufacturing step, but also for the better qualified designer, engineer, financial analyst or accountant at the best available at the best available cost. Hence, Indian white-collar work will be actively interacting with Chinese blue-collar work within an integrated global process. Uh, East Asia's emerging economies and India play a fundamental role within the global value chains. The first in manufactures, the second in services. While East Asian emerging economies with China at the forefront led the manufacturing sector, India plays an equally important role within the service sector. Um, raw materials on their side uh, participate in the global economy as the basic building blocks of manufacture world. Um, a commodity change referred to a network labor and production process whose end, results is a finished commodity. Each production site in the chain involves organizing the acquisition of necessary raw materials, plus semi finished inputs, etc. The result of this has been that what was presumably, presumably to be a process control and and for the benefit of uh, uh, the most advanced economies began to benefit uh, developing economies, uh, particularly those of East Asia and India. But uh, the group of stakeholders of globalization is much larger, much larger uh, than simply East Asian India. And each of them represents a new support link. This includes, among others, global cities, maritime routes, companies of different nature, etc. Global cities have been identified as centres of managed management and control of the global economy. They concentrate in themselves decision, coordination, and services, servicing functions of global projection. Their importance is measured by elements such as the number of corporate headquarters that they exceeded, capacity, the capacity, the range of business activities under the coverage, the volume of foreign direct investment that they can muster or attract, Interconnectivity of areas under the control, etc. Moreover, global cities are skilled clusters, also, or as Enrico Moretti uh, calls them, brain hubs. The hierarchical classification of these cities is clear in relation to its first two spots, London and New York. They top the list, however. The place of others within the ranking is open to discussion. The city is entitled to be included in the list had I been mean, no doubt, but it ranks thus. Amid such cities, we could mention Paris, Singapore, Hong Kong, San Francisco, Dubai, Beijing, Shanghai, or Tokyo. Um, when a global city is part of a larger country, there tends to be a cold between the two of them. For inland US, New York is a totally alien place in the same manner in which London's multiculturalism goes against the United Kingdom's national mood. Hence, while global cities are natural supporters of globalization, their national environments may frequently go in opposite direction. But I take reboots on the side, or more exactly, the countries that control them are also in the list of supporters. At a time, transport represents the fundamental bloodstream of the globalized economy. It carries more than 90 percent of the world's goods, and around 50 percent of global oil, playing oil. a fundamental role within the global supply chains. Transport tends to concentrate itself around the so-called maritime routes. These routes represent compulsory crossing points between oceans, between seas, or between ocean and seas. They can be made or natural, man-made or natural. Among the first, we find the Panama and the Suez Canals. Among the second, the Malacca or the Gibraltar Strait. In both cases, they represent funnels of high strategic significance some more than others, of course. The main four maritime roads are the Malacca Strait, the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, and the Ormos Strait, but there are others of minor significant. Each of these maritime roads remain fundamental, not only for the states that control the passage, some of which have heavily invested great and available infrastructure, but also for the border in countries. In many cases, important have been built in order to take advantage of their strategic nature. Uh, a very important addition to this list of supporters comes from the companies that benefit from globalization. Naturally, they represent a very diverse group. Among them, we find Western corporations involved in global value chains, Asian corporations that are closed as a result of international trade, Asian corporations involved in offshore manufacturing, and big retailers and writers. Uh, so as we see, there is a large number of stakeholders of globalization. If at the beginning, globalization was ideologically and was supposed to be um, supported by a group of us moving the developed develop nations. At this point in time, the great beneficiaries of globalization and hence the main stakeholders are. Uh, Developing economies who have developed who have benefited extensively from this process as well as all the cities and companies and countries that are attain important benefits as well
0: and what is the role technology plays in the story? What is the fourth industrial revolution, and how has it changed the job market and
1: and, and global economy. Well, a
0: technology
1: plays a fundamental role. It also played a fundamental role during the phase we were talking about. Supply chains, global chains of value, were of course very important. Technologically, I'm uh, and, and talking. But which is significant of these new technologies, of these new, new technologies, of this fourth industrial revolution, is that they are allowing the onshoring of previously offshored uh, economic processes. Technological feasibility. Makes possible indeed the onshoring of economic activities to the Western world, proclaim as a name by political by the political intention of populist and left-wing uh, political parties. In 1991, Alpin Toffler wrote about a world divided into quick-moving and slow-moving nations, into nations with advanced economic and technological systems and outpaced economic and technological nations submitted to huge economic limitations and social problems. Toughness, de, de Copeland prediction could not last a decade, as 1.3 billion Chinese or 1.2 billion Indians joined the labor market within a context of a race to the bottom of production cost. As a result, Western nations began transforming themselves into embattled uh, fortresses. Moreover, in 2008, lax and hawkish banking practices in the U.S. unleashed an international realization. As Western nations emerged from this crisis, concatenation of hiding deepness, sluggish growth and lack of confidence made its appearance. As a consequence, another decoupling, very different from that predicted by torture, began to take shape. Indeed, developing nations lifted by China's phenomenal emergence and, of course, by the by the push of globalization, continued to grow, despite the lackluster performance shown by the developed world. However, the four inside will bring back the kind of decoupling envisaged by troffler. Within it, the distinction between high and low-cost producing countries will become increasingly irrelevant. What will matter is the aptitude for innovation that that each country has. Thus, a group of developed developed economies led by U.S. And this time, with the active presence of China as well, will run the show. This decoupling could be particularly tough for slow moving nations. Technologically advanced economies will become much more autonomous in relation to manufacturers, commodities, and services coming from the developing world. While globalization loses standing as a result of the increasing outrage of developed countries, Emerging nations will become dramatically stressed. <clears throat> this incoming tsunami will impact them in all sorts of ways. Their labor-intensive assembly line could not could be simply flattened down by the top of the disruption of robotics and additive manufacturing. Their mining sector, iron and steel industries. And many other commodities will lose ground as nanotechnology substitutes old materials for new ones in the next few decades. The farming and livestock sectors can be turned upside down as genome, genome, uh, genome technology advances in the fields of vegetable, uh, sorry, as genome technology advances in the field vegetables, fruits and meat, while indoor farming, robot farming, or production automations take over. As a result, the developed world will become increasingly increasingly self-sufficient in these areas. Live meat and milk, vegetables and fruits that have grown in the soil will be a quaint and fine thing of the past. Much of the hydrocarbons reserves in emerging economies run the risk as well of remaining on the ground as new technologies supply the developed world with the energy it will need. Last but not least in the list, of course, the service sectors which has played such an important part in the welfare of the emerging nations will be threatened by digital technology from all fronts. This shall derail or abort its integration into global value chains. The lower cost of the white collar jobs, the cheaper brains, will count for little when confronted to the power of algorithms. This is one side of the coin. The other side of the same coin is the onshoring uh, or reshoring or Of previously offshore manufacturing service activities, as well as the local substitution of imported commodities. The new technologies are the ones in the process of doing this, motivating developed societies to produce near the area where consumption takes place, be it of objects, foods, and energy while at the same time applies to services. Not surprisingly, author Fimber-Livershade's wrote, we are running the global economy on a model that went out of date with anyone noticing at some point in the past decade. Labor-intensive assembly lines can only become obsolete if robotics and automation can now work at the scale required from the small to the large at a lower cost, if robots can produce and at a lower cost than the human worker, there can there can be no match for them. Why then have factories at the other end of the world when it is possible to produce cheaper at home? Additive um, technology or 3D printing will also evolve in a substantial way labour intensive assembly line. Um, <clears throat> the implications of a contraction of the international trade of parts as a result of 3D printers will be huge will be huge. According to PricewaterhouseCoopers, Price Pricewaterhouse I that would put up forty percent of traditional air and shipping cargo on the trade. Uh, intermediate trade of unfinished goods. It has to be at line accounts for approximately sixty percent of global trade. Uh, additive technology can be profoundly disrupted uh, for two reasons. First, because numerous parts will be produced, will be produced locally. Second because 3D printing allows for the elimination of many previously needed parts and pieces in any given product. But in addition, uh, to unfinished uh, unfinish goods, 3D printing is a problem into the production of finished goods as well. This implies smaller volume, volumes of production, but at the same time, customized production. Hence these new technologies can totally disrupt a uh, traditional trade between emerging and developed economies. The same happens for the traditional resources that developing economies have been extracting out of the grounds, peeling out of the fields, or raising up in their farms for the consumption of the, de- of the developed economies. As they may be uh, substituted by local alternatives, technology simply could trump trump those gifts of nature: molecular molecular bonding between light atoms that result in new material, cellular factories that replace the need of living animals, controlling famine and agriculture in reduced spaces renewable energy, but a few of examples of the way in which mass substitution of commodities can take place in developed economies. Uh, But of course, um, let's, let's take the case of the mass substitution of agricultural products Controlled environment agriculture represented by high tech indoor farms will be able to produce locally year round higher yields. Uh, imagine growing in all your food in a 50 story tall vertical farm in downtown LA or offshore on the Great Lakes where the travel distance is no longer than. It's no longer 1,000 miles, but just 15 miles. The localized farming will minimize travel costs at the same time that it maximize freshness. And the examples go on and on. As for the substitution of fossil energy, um, not only the shale revolution is leading to a where of sufficient But renewable energy rapidly advances toward making the developed much more autonomous in this area. Uh, um, Let me talk about uh, what I consider the best example in this area, which has been provided by Jeremy Rifkin, who has served as advisor to Germany, the European Union, and China within the so-called Third Industrial Revolution 3, His master plan is to implement post-carbon infrastructures. Today, as his presence, internet technology and renewable energies are are beginning to merge in order to create a new infrastructure for a third industrial revolution. This should change the way power is distributed in the 21st century. In the coming era, he envisages hundreds of millions of people producing their own renewable energy in their homes, offices, and factories, and then sharing it with each other to an energy internet. This implies several steps. One, shifting to renewable energy, two, transforming the building stock into power plants to collect Renewable energies on site. Three, deploying hydrogen and other storage technologies in every building so as to store intermittent energy. D, using internet technology to transform the power grid into an energy internet that acts like the internet, with millions of buildings generating small amounts of renewable energy whose surplus is sent to the grid was so to be shared with others. And finally, transformed the transport fleet to electric block in and fuel cell, cell vehicles, which can be charged at home. Uh, when we see then all that uh, the fourth industrial revolution may bring with it in the next few decades, there is few illusion or emerging economies in terms of uh, keep playing the role they have been playing uh, until now.
0: And I don't know, want to finish this conversation without going back to the pro-globalization and anti-globalization trends you, you explain in your book and that you have explained in this conversation. You already told us about the supporters of globalization and who They are. But what about the other side of the coin? Who are those against globalization and how are these beliefs associated with politics and politicians? I am particularly thinking about populism. Could you tell us more about it?
1: Yes. Uh, Put it in in simple words. There are pro-globalization trends. And these basically relate to the strongest pro-globalization trends essentially relate to China and East Asia, and the countries that that have hugely benefited from globalization, and at a point in time, when many Western countries have withdrawn themselves from this pro-globalization idea, then they are uh, assuming the lead in this area. But on the other hand, there are two very different but converging trends that uh, are a threat to globalization. I just talked about the fourth industrial revolution. The fourth industrial revolution will be a threat by the simple fact that it will push towards the decoupling between developed and developing economies, because it would make Western economies economies much more autonomous in relation to products and, and raw materials that they used to import from developing economies against globalisation there is the conviction that this phenomenon had had a very negative impact on the economies and the social tissues of countless countries, developed ones in particular. That this has represented a 0 game in which emerging economies have unilaterally benefited at the expense of the decline of traditionally rich societies. Above all, there exists the view that globalization identifies itself with greedy elites and corporations from developed economies, which have disproportionately enriched themselves. At the expense of the middle classes and the common citizen who have carried the burden of disappearing jobs, economic insecurity, and a declining lifetime. These beliefs and sentiments are associated with populist um, left wing politics and with, curiously enough, Putinism. It uh, was not so at the beginning, of course, Um, uh, when confidence that developed economies could become the natural, when there was true confidence that developed economies could become the natural beneficiaries of globalization. Globalization was supposed to have play to the advantage of liberal societies, which were presumably best suited to capitalize on the fast and fluid global marketplace. But instead, we have seen exactly the opposite. Indeed, by promoting the inclusion into the labor global equation of 1, 1. 1.3 billion Chinese or 1.2 billion Indians within the context of a race to the bottom of production cost, Western nations created huge economic and social problems for themselves, while becoming in battle for fortresses. The created destruction associated with the market economy model, unforeseeable at the beginning, brought with it a lot of creation for emerging economies and substantial destruction for developed ones. Both in Europe and the United States, economic disruption sparked social unrest, which in turn produced major political disruption. Populism, has become the great beneficiary of this huge dissatisfaction against the status quo, unleashing a political wave that currently floats, uh, floats both the United States and Europe. The common denominator of all these populist parties and, movement, and movements is their anti-system character. They present themselves as expression of the people and of its interest against the traditional elites within their credo, a dichotomy exists between the Foucaultian social majority and the privileged few. Their grievance is directed against death, selfish, arrogant, and corrupt political elite, which they see as complicit with the excesses and greediness of big corporations and a wealthy class. For the European populism, uh, well, um, there is, for all of them, globalization has played a very negative role, having become the main disruptor of their lifestyles, of their societies, and having become the main enemy of middle classes. This enmity, this sense of, of enmity, encompasses, by extension, a wide array of international or multinational institutions or initiatives that goes from the World Trade Organization to Davos, from the international financial markets to free trade agreements and the international monetary funds. For European populists, this include the European Union as well, as institutions that systematically the will of the people are being seen as a greedy institution. For many um, uh, populist parties and candidates are on the move, both in the United States and Europe. Donald Trump won the White House while Bernie Sanders came in a very strong second to Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination. And these candidates came on the the heels of the Tea Party and occupied Wall Street movements. In Europe, populist parties in Italy, Germany, France, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, Austria, Greece, Spain, Switzerland, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia are contending for power or are already part of the government. There is, of course, an important distinction between European populism and its US counterpart. The plurality of political parties within the European political scene is in in tune with the parliamentary political system of the majority of its countries, allow French parties to survive. It also allows for the creation of new parties. As a result, many populist parties existed for quite some time in the outskirts of the political system before thriving in the same manner in which others move into the mainstream after having been recently created. Um, That, of course, would have been unthinkable in the United States. In the United States, the rigid two party system and the existence of the Electoral College takes away any chance of success by a populist party. Even Ross Perot, who ran two of the strongest presidential throws by a third party or independent candidate in US history, had no chance of success. In the 1992 election, he received almost 90% of the popular vote, but did not get single electoral college vote. In 1996, after having founded the reform party, he received 8% of the popular vote, but again, not a single electoral college vote. He showed that populists had an important support in the country, although he also made evident the impossibility of winning the White House from the outside of the two-party system. Hence, the only chance that populism has in the US is by conquering one of the two traditional political parties from the inside. The first recent populist movement that tried to do that was the Tea Party. Although its grasp of the Republican Party proved to be very important with uh, 62 vociferous members in the House of Representatives, it remained clearly insufficient to obtain. The control of the party. The 2016 presidential election was to become a landmark, as both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump emerged as formidable populist candidates within the two-party system. With different, um, um, hence, there is those the, the important difference in between European and American populism. But as we have seen, uh, Trump has has taken control of the Republican Party, which at this point in time has transformed itself into a populist party. And uh, if there is uh, the possibility of Democrats taking him out of the White House, it will probably be through the expression of uh, the new trends, the populist trends within the Democratic Party. Uh, but uh, it's not also, it's not only populist that it's against uh, um, globalization. Uh, uh, the anti-globalization camp also includes. Um, also includes a, a several expressions of left-wing of le, of European parties. This is clearly the case of Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, and to a lesser extent of Jean Luc Mélenchon in France. Uh, but having said that, there is also, as I mentioned at the uh, initially, the um, another enemy to 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 globalization and that's Putin. Of course, um, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin is in a very different category. His ideas have much uh, have much in common with those of high right populists. Of course, not that Russia matters matters much in the global trade equation energy excluded but it becomes relevant due to its closeness to Western populism. This closeness expresses itself in three ways. First, through the Kremlin's civil campaigns on their behalf. Second, by their looking at Putin's ideas as role models. And third, by seeing Russia as a natural ally. In Franklin Ford's words, and I quote, after the global crisis of 2008, populist uprisings had escorted across Europe. Putin and his strategies since the beginnings of a larger uprisings that could open the continent and make life uncomfortable for his strategic competitors. With the traditional masses reaped for revolt, the Russian president had an opportunity. He could become the new world leader of conservatives. It would be naive not to assume that what really matters to Putin's Russia is the objective of Western power and stability. This by way of deconstructing the Western democratic post-war establishment through the weakening of the American-led network of alliances and rules, particularly NATO. And by the collapse of the European Union, populism becomes, under this perspective, a formidable tool on behalf of Russia's geopolitical aims. Um Putin's anti-globalization stands, though, is of secondary relevance, given Russia's modest role within globalization. What really matters from a globalizing perspective if manipulation of the anti-established sentiment prevailing in Western society so as to disrupt the status quo most thoroughly.
0: Well, with this complicated scenario, I think we have to close our, our conversation for today. We've taken up a lot of your time. But uh, I would like... Th- for you to share with us if you have any other project you are working on now.
1: Yes. um, I just uh, signed an agreement with World Scientific, which is the same uh, uh, publishing firm that just published this book, uh, for another one uh, that deals with the technological competition between the US and China. So these next few months, I'm going to devote myself to research in the technological advancements of both the US and China and the technological competition between them to see which of the two is in a better position to win the race to the first place. I hope to have this book ready. Um, probably by by October, November of this year.
0: Well, that sounds like a great project. Uh, Alfredo, I want to thank you for being on the show today. This was a really, really interesting talk. Uh, Take care.
1: Thank you so much, Manila.
0: And thank you everybody for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time.